Well, good morning. It is wonderful to see all of you here today, as we mentioned just a minute ago. I know uh, this may be the first time for many of you to be here, or maybe you haven't been here in some time, but we want to say we are so thrilled that you are here today. Uh, what, what's going to happen over the next segment of time is we're going to open God's Word. We're going to go to a wonderful book, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, so you could go ahead and turn there now if you have your Bibles, your devices. It's on the back of that handout that you were given. We're going to take the next 45 minutes and we're going to study God's Word together um, and praise Almighty God for what He has shown us through His Word. While you're turning, I would like to invite all of you next week. Today is sort of like part one of what is going to be highlighted next week. Next week is the Resurrection Day celebration. No greater day in all of human history than the Resurrection Day. And so we get to celebrate that next week. Next week, uh, as was already mentioned, there'll be a, a time of brunch, casual brunch, if you want to join us for that. Or, but make sure you're here in this room at 1015, ready to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Since this is Palm Sunday, we obviously are going to take a short break from our, our study in Romans. We're going to take just a time today for a simple reminder of what this Palm Sunday is all about. Many of these things are things you've heard since you were little critters. Going to children's church, and you heard about Palm Sunday. You had creative teachers that would bring palm branches and bring them to the class, and you were thinking, wow, this is really cool. They would tell you the story of Jesus riding in a donkey, and even I've heard of some churches that would even bring in donkeys. <laughs> this is great, but what does that all mean? Well, you've heard of these things, and today we're going to go through the text of Scripture, and we're going to remind ourselves that this is no small event in human history. What happens in John 12, what happens in Matthew 21, and in Mark 11, and in Luke 19. Why did I mention all of those? Because this is one of those events in the New Testament of Scripture that is recorded in all of the Gospels. This is a big deal. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk of this event. We're going to dial in on John chapter 11 and 12 this morning, but we're going to talk about this. The king who must suffer. I mean, to preface what we're going to talk about today, a lot of times we like to highlight this king of kings and lord of lords. We're going to go from the Old Testament into the New Testament today. I hope you brought a Bible that's ready to turn or a device that's ready to scroll. Because we're going to look at a lot of different passages today, and what we're going to do is look at this anticipation for this king all leading up to John chapters 11 and 12. This anticipation for this king that's going to set it all right. He's going to conquer. And there's a group of people that gather around this event in John chapter 12. We'll read about them in just a minute. They're gathering. They're ready for Jesus at this moment to set up this wonderful physical kingdom. To squelch the oppression of the Romans. And here comes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> We're going to talk about that this morning. Let's set this story up. I know you're in John 12, but if you want to kind of peek over to the last pages, 
I want us to just kind of set up the context of what's happening, the real life event that's happening here by going to the end of John chapter 11. The end of John chapter 11, verse 55, we find this setup. Here it is. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So very quickly, what is the context of our story today? Well, it is the Jewish feast, the Passover. We could stand here for weeks on end and talk about the beauty and significance of the Passover feast. That, that is not necessarily what we're going to do today, um, but it holds such great significance for those who worshiped Yahweh, and it holds great significance for you and for me. We'll unfold this as we go. But at this particular context, what we have is hundreds of thousands, and by some accounts historically, even potentially millions. I, I think very pro- probably it was more in the hundreds of thousands of people from around the known world, the region around Jerusalem, that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And what were they celebrating? Catch this. They were celebrating God's redemption of Israel. That is so good. We could almost close our Bibles right now and go. Because God's redemption of Israel is what we, my brothers and sisters in Christ, celebrate every day. And then as we get into our Roman study, we're going to find that we have been grafted into this story. We have been brought into this wonderful story of redemption. But in John chapter 11 and 12, you find a group of people assembling. This assemblance in Jerusalem, this Passover, signified God's grace to God's people through historically what was the Exodus. And you can read of this in the Exodus of your Bibles. It involved careful selection of a perfect Passover lamb that would be sacrificed on behalf of God's people. So here we are. I'm going to read verse 56. By the way, we've only gotten through one verse, so we're in trouble today. (laughs) Hold on. Verse 56, here it is. They, that's the Passover travelers, were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Think that he'll come to the feast at all? Okay, the buzz was in the air in Jerusalem. There's this Jesus who just days, maybe weeks, but probably just days prior, had just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story. It's in John chapter 11. Where Jesus stands there and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he will live again. Do you believe this? This word was pressing, passing. You have a group of religious leaders, we're talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the select group of Sanhedrin. Oh boy, this has got to them. They couldn't stand this Jesus. So when we think about the context of Romans, uh, sorry, Romans, no, of John chapter 12, what's happening here? There's buzz in the air, there's excitement in the air, not just because of the Passover feast, but because of this person, Jesus. Jerusalem was hopping. Things were happening. But Jerusalem was a very volatile time for Jesus Christ. So what would Jesus do? 
Verse 57 of John 11 says this, Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's get into John chapter 12. Would you look with me at verse 12? What is Jesus now going to do? Verse 12 of John chapter 12 starts out this way. The next day. So this is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday prior to the Passover. The previous day being the Sabbath, where Jesus rested with his friends in Bethany. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He was going to make this small travel from Bethany to Jerusalem, and the word passed on. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, what? Crying out, what? Hosanna! We need those kids back up here. They yelled that so well. They cried out, Hosanna, which is a wonderful word. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 118, this is the word, save us. I mean, with the prefix to this, it is, save us now. We need salvation from this oppression. The palm trees, the palm branches. I mean, there's a lot that could be said about this. But if you think about... uh, National pride seen through flags. Think of it that way. The palm branch was like a national flag, waving this national flag. It was kind of a, actually a state, statement of rebellion almost by waving these, these palm branches. The king is here. Wave your flag. Yeah, I grew up in Bronco country in Denver. And you know someone was ready to pick a fight when they drove around town with an Oakland Raiders flag. <laughs> a certain part of town that you would, knew that would come from. They're ready to battle. Think of it that way. Waving these palm branches. National pride. These flags. The king of the Jews has arrived. Be ready. And we had here um, the end of verse 13. So I'll go ahead and read all the way through verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, or it is written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, so after the cross and resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So twice in this text, I don't know if you caught it, we're reminded that this was an account that was written about. This is not just some random event happening. Jesus didn't just go, you know, find a neighbor that had a donkey, send his disciples to go get the donkey. There's actually two of them, if you read the different accounts. He didn't just go, go get this thing, okay, let's go. No, this is something that had been prophesied hundreds, and actually even in Psalm 118, there's a potential of that being written 1,400 years before Jesus came. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everything about this event is articulated historically. So in our minds, we need to think, if this was written about, where was this written about? Well, I included on your handout, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years before this event even took place, God's prophet Zechariah records this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming righteous and having salvation is he. Okay, quick time out. All of those at this event in John chapter 12 saw this salvation thing going a bit differently. They didn't understand what was about to happen in the life of Jesus over the next week. I'm going to tell you, I think probably not a single one of them there understood this. Why do I say that? Well, if his own disciples didn't understand it, certainly these people traveling into town who were just joining the hordes didn't understand what was about to happen that week. Even though Jesus Christ had talked about this, and he'd given these, not just like slight clues, he's actually told his disciples this will happen. And they didn't get it. So back in Zechariah chapter, Zechariah chapter 9, it says, righteous and having salvation is he, another key word, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Furthermore, in this passage in John chapter 12, it is directly written out of Psalm 118, as we've already made a point, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of these are things that are happening at this time. And in fact, Jesus Christ, this is kind of the, kind of the, the, uh, the point in his ministry where there's a change. Even in the book of John, you can see this. You see the flow happening where constantly Jesus is like, the time's not here, the time's not here, the time's not yet, the time's not yet. Guess what now happens in John chapter 12? The time is here. This is very, very, very intentional. When you think of John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, there's a lot happening. Clearly, the hero of this story is who? Jesus. Just like the hero of the entire Bible, it is Jesus. He is God the Son. He is Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah rescuer, as we will see today. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus, who, is, who had experienced a miraculous birth. He had experienced a humble upbringing. He is now a 33-year-old man who had lived a completely sinless life. And by the way, that is absolutely crucial in the story, the biblical story of Jesus. Why? Because he was the perfect God-man. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time in order that he might 100% redeem. That's through the Bible. At this point in Jesus' life, he had spent the last three and a half years traveling through the Bible land regions of Judea and Galilee. And what was he doing? He was training his disciples. He was showing God's kindness. He was revealing God's plan. He was proclaiming God's truth. And the weeks, possibly days prior to this John 12 Palm Sunday event, something amazing happened. 
You read about this in John 11, as we've already mentioned. Jesus had supernaturally raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. Bethany, just a, a short hike from Bethany to Jerusalem. This infuriated the Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus. Now knowing it was not yet his time to fulfill God's ultimate plan in John 11, we transfer into John 12 where now it is the time. Jesus, having gone back north, in your mind, you can think of all those Bible land maps in the back of your Bible. <laughs> the ones when you were a little critter that you would go to when the preacher was boring. You know what I'm talking about. And you just look at all those maps. All right. You follow, you trace Jesus' steps from Jerusalem. He goes up north into Judea and Samaria. He, he actually joins all of these hordes of people who are coming to the Passover. He does miracles. And it's almost like he's recruiting these people to come. It's an awesome picture. I can't wait till I get to, uh, to, to heaven and I get to see some sort of a replay of this. Jesus comes down with these hordes of people, hundreds of thousands of them, Jesus, the King of kings, there's so much significance in this. The King of kings who's walking alongside His people. This is a not, not some king that's ruling in some golden splendor palace and throne. This is Jesus who is identifying with His people. Sandals in the dirt walking to Jerusalem for the Passover. He makes a quick stand or a night stay over in Bethany with, with Lazarus, newly raised Lazarus, and Mary and Martha. It was the Sabbath day. But then the next day, things start happening. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus entered Jerusalem and was hailed by the multitudes as the King of Israel. Again, even though I think not a single person there understood the significance of what was happening as far as the rest of the week. They didn't see that this Jesus who was riding in must suffer. Jesus came in. He entered in on a donkey. By the way, this was not historically abnormal for a king to enter into a into a city triumphant. Um, I'm not going to go in and talk about that right now long term, but I will say what is a bit abnormal in this story is the fact that he entered in on a donkey. That's not like the norm. That's not like the go-to when you want to prove that you're powerful and strong. Go find the closest donkey. You understand what I mean. This is a beast of burden. And actually, as you go through the text, and you compare the text, you'll find that this is not just some donkey, it is the cult of a donkey. This is so cool. I believe this was an unridden donkey, untrained donkey. Have you ever even tried to come around a donkey? <laughs> One of my favorite things I ever watched when they used to do these fundraisers where people drag these donkeys around and try to play basketball. You ever seen that? How many of you have been part of one of those? Okay, I see like three hands, four hands. These things don't do what you want them to do. Jesus gets on and rides an untamed 
donkey into Jerusalem, and this thing did exactly what he told it to do. This is so cool. By the way, you're not going to find any other account in the Gospels of Jesus writing anything. <laughs> He's not an experienced horseman or donkey man, whatever you want to say. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over all of God's creation, and he proved it by getting on that donkey. At any rate, uh, one step further, you're going to go to the end of your Bible and you're going to find that Jesus was riding something, wasn't he? What's going to happen at the end of the Bible? Oh, for all the horse lovers, here it is, where's Ginger? He is riding in with a white horse and all, and we'll read this in just a minute if I get there, all of the soldiers of Jesus are following behind him, riding white horses. This King of kings and Lord of lords. At the end of your Bibles, he sets this all straight. We'll get there at some point. Why did this happen? Why why this Palm Sunday? In, In my mind, when I read scriptures, a lot of times that's the key word. Why? You ever do that? Why? Well, John doesn't hide it. We've already mentioned it twice in these verses. Verses 14 and 16, he accounts that it was written. It has been written in verse 14. Verse 16, things had been written about him. So the very simple answer of why this entire kind of awkward situation, traveling into into, uh, Jerusalem with the donkey, people having laid their cloaks on the back of the donkey, cloaks on the ground, palm branches. Why did all of this happen? So that God's written word would be precisely fulfilled. Take note of that. That God keeps his word. My friends, a quick time out. Maybe you're doubting that right now. I'm going to tell you, even in the story of the triumphal entry, that God proves every detail that he will keep his word in all of our lives. He says what he will do, and he does what he says he will do. Every time. This is the faithfulness of Almighty God. So taken within the context of John chapter 12 to 19, so all of this section, the triumphal entry, all the way to the crucifixion, there's a massive story coming on here with strong intention. Every part of this story means something. Even the donkey, even coming into Jerusalem, the palm branches, it all means something. And I believe it teaches us a couple things, and we have to run to this key truth. Here it is, and we'll kind of develop this over the next 20 minutes. In God's sovereign plan, the eternal king, okay, that's John 12, was to endure suffering. That's John 13 through 19. John 12 is a setup for what's going to come in the rest of the book. In God's sovereign plan, the eternal king was to come, but what was the purpose? It was to endure the suffering of the cross. So what we're going to do over this next segment of time is just take each one of these three statements and kind of develop it through the scriptures. Hold on. because so we're just going to prove each of these points from the scriptures, starting with this one, in God's sovereign plan. The point is this, that as revealed in His Holy Word, God, the sovereign creator of the universe, has been, is, and will always be working His sovereign plan. 
He is God, as we try to remind ourselves often in this church. God is God, and I am not. God is who He says He is, not who I want Him to be. God will accomplish His plan because He is God. How do we know that God is accomplishing His plan? I mean, we can jump right into multiple texts, but I love this text because I put it here at the bottom. It's on the back of your handout. You can see all of these verses if you'd like. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5. Paul explaining to the believers. This is in the New Testament of our Bible. So these believers and followers of Jesus Christ in the region of Galatia. I love how he explains the gospel. Here's how he explains it. He says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. And why? To redeem those who are under the law. What's the point? The fullness of time had come. God and his plan was working this all out. Okay, another passage that we have to go to in our minds. There's so many of them. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Paul clarifying the gospel with his son in the ministry, Timothy, and he says this, and you know these verses. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. By the way, this is fresh in, in my mind because uh, our two youngest daughters, before we go to bed, they're learning this one. Our youngest is four. And I, I will, I'll say a couple words, and then she'll fill in one of the words. So I'll say, for there is one, God. And there is one, and I'm going to tell you, for the last couple of weeks, she can't figure out this word mediator. Um, so her word for mediator is stimulator. <laughs> There's one God and one stimulator. Well, yeah, I guess so. But according to the text, he is the mediator, all right? There's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given, these key words, at the proper time. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 10, I will not go through all of these. I'll jump to verse 9. We find these words from Paul to the church of Ephesus. He says, making God, making known to us the mystery of His will, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. I mean, you can't read through scriptures without coming to this solid conclusion that there is a God who is working His plan. God has a perfect plan that he is working for his own glory and for our own good as we're seeing unfolded in the book of Romans and in chapter 8. And this clearly, this event in John chapter 12 clearly proves this. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, proves that there is a God who is sovereignly working his plan at his time through Jesus Christ. In God's sovereign plan, let's go to the next key phrase, the eternal king. Oh, this is such a good theme through scriptures. One of the primary themes in all of scriptures is that God has ordained his Messiah as the king of kings and lord of lords over all creations. Furthermore, through time, he is exposing this king and establishing this king 
through a certain kingly line. You know this kingly line because it's all through the Bible. Is the line of King David. You might be saying, well, prove it. How do you know that this sovereign God is establishing his eternal king through David? Well, I love that you asked that because we'll go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God himself, through Nathan the prophet, gives this promise to David. He says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we go back to this whole thing was, well, God, will God keep his word? Okay, you anticipate that when you go to the next chapter uh, that we're going to look at, Psalm 89. Okay, listen to the words of Psalm 89. I didn't include all of them in the front of your handout there. Well, it might be in the back. Verse 89, uh, Psalm 89, verse 4. God says, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, Selah. If you jump down to verse 35, here's what he says. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. (laughs) Is God serious about this king thing? Absolutely. His offspring shall endure forevermore. His throne as long as the sun before me. How many days since creation has the sun come up? Every day. How true is the promise that King Jesus will set all things right? Absolutely. That's how certain it is. Um, Verse 37, like the moon, it will be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies that God keeps his word. If you want to look at this highlighted, some of you like to spend more of your time in the New Testament than the Old Testament. I like to think, just like several of my mentors say, you need the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. (laughs) You need to see God's plan unfold all the way through the Scriptures, but some of you that like to hang out more in the New Testament, where are you going to see this? Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages. God used this passage in my life when I was a junior in high school. I was overwhelmed with this passage. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, but particularly verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will happen. If you can't wait to understand the rest of the story, it is like my wife. I try to pick on her at some point through every sermon. I hope you've known that. I do love my wife with all my heart. But we cannot get through a movie series or something like that without her going to Google and reading about the story. We tell her, that's cheating! Like when you open up a novel and you, or, or a mystery and you go to chapter 35 because you can't wait to get there. Okay, for those of us who need to do that, let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 16. I know it's a little longer, but this is a wonderful passage. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Catch this imagery. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 14, all of us believers are here are in Revelation. Here it is. And the armies of heaven... That's all the believers, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, all of us who've come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. We're in Revelation 19. And the armies of heaven, believers, arrayed in fine living, white and pure, while following him on white horses. Yes, you get a white horse. Whether you like horses or not, you get one. By the way, I have a white horse. Does anybody want him? <laughs> Uh, verse, where did we get? Okay, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, that is from the front of our Bibles to the back of our Bibles, is that God is establishing His plan and it involves King Jesus. So when we think about John chapter 12, coming back to this text, the triumphal entry, the entry of King Jesus on a donkey, their significance. The significance is the fact that in God's sovereign plan, the eternal king. But we can't stop there, can we? He was to endure suffering. This is the point that I believe all directly involved in the story completely missed. Including his disciples, as John tells us in this text. They missed it until afterwards. My friend, the story of your Bible, starting from the very beginning, is yes, Jesus comes as king, but there is a suffering that must take place. You say, okay, prove it to me from the very beginning of your Bible. Yes. What happens right after Adam and Eve sin and rebel against Almighty Holy God? You know the story. You can go to John, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Many theologians consider this uh, uh, the first rendering of the gospel in the scriptures. What is this? Here is a promise. God Almighty, the holy creator of the universe, doesn't just leave his prized creations struggling. No, he comes and he promises to them that this will be set right. He promises to them, but also who does he promise this to? We're going to see this unfolded next week. He promises this to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Where? Well, if you look with me at verse 14, here it is. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Just verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this is referring to Jesus, the Messiah, shall bruise your head. And we know that word bruise is more than just a little you know, brown spot on your hand or whatever. As you go into the New Testament, you find that the, 
the meaning of this could be taken as crushed. He will crush your head, Satan. But in the meantime, there's another aspect of this bruising, crushing. You will bruise his heel. What's the theological significance behind that? Satan, get ready. King Jesus is going to stomp you out. Because as he stomps you out, there's going to be some pain involved. You're going to bruise his heel. My friends, that is the story of the Passion Week. The bruising of the heel of Jesus. He goes to the grave. He suffers. So from the beginning of your Bible to the end, uh, into the New Testament, you're going to find that there's a necessity for a Messiah, King Jesus, to suffer. You can't get through talking about the suffering of King Jesus without going to the Mount Ephraim of passages in the Old Testament prophesying of Jesus, and that is Isaiah 53. Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus Christ even came, tells us very clearly in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. My friend, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords he's talking of. He is now considered as the suffering servant. Verse 10. I mean, you can't get around these words. This goes right back to God's sovereign plan. The eternal king will suffer. Here it is. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. My friends, for his own honor and glory, it was God's will that Jesus went to the cross. If we travel into the New Testament of our scriptures and you look at Acts chapter 2, this is Pentecost when Peter preaches, 3,000 souls come to Jesus Christ and one day Peter is preaching. He's confronting these Jews. And I love how he tells this story. And in this story he says, verse 23, and this Jesus, catch the wording that Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You have crucified and killed him by, uh, and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is he saying? Friends, this Jesus must suffer. It is in God's plan. If you travel through the book of Acts, you see the establishment of the New Testament church. You come to wonderful passages of Scripture. One such is Acts chapter 17. Paul to this church in Thessalonica, and listen how he explains this. Verse 2, And Paul went in as his custom was, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he's just going to the Scriptures and talking to these people in the synagogue about Jesus. Explaining and proving. Catch the wording, my friends. It's clear. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And then the rest of the verse, I'm going to wait to read next week. (laughs) But we can't get around this. It was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords to suffer. Friends, this is all the way through our Bibles. Suffering had to happen. In God's sovereign plan, the eternal king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey was to endure the intense suffering. And he did. Traditionally, this week is known as 
the Passion Week. Oh, my friends, I hope your heart's overwhelmed this week. I often cannot get through this week without every dear day just being overwhelmed with Jesus, what Jesus Christ did for me. On Thursday, Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. On Friday, Jesus would be beaten and crucified. By the end of the day, he would be hanging on a cross. On Saturday, Jesus' lifeless body would lay in a stone-cold tomb. And God's sovereign plan, the eternal king, was to endure suffering. He was to be betrayed by one disciple. He was to be denied by another disciple. He, would to be, he was to be abandoned by all his disciples. That was to happen this very week. The week where Jesus rides in triumphantly. Everyone abandons him. He would be rejected by his people. He would be tried by heathen rulers. He would be beaten by Roman soldiers. And he would be nailed to the humiliating Roman cross. All within a week of his entry into Jerusalem. In God's sovereign plan, the eternal king must suffer. So as we close out our time though, this question again comes to my mind. Why? Why did God do this? Why the sovereign plan of God that included an eternal king who must suffer? Well, I want to go back to that Mount Alphurst of passages in the Old Testament because I think we find one of the clearest reasons ever in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are Why did the eternal king endure suffering, my friends? It was to be your substitute and my substitute. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 very clearly says this, For God, catch the wording, For God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the simplest of terms, the eternal king endured suffering in order that Satan would be conquered, our sins would be forgiven, and that we might stand righteous before a holy God. So what? So what? I mean, this whole story of Palm Sunday. We're going to walk out these doors in just a couple few short minutes. What difference does this make in your life? I, I think, as we do every week, we want to ask questions here. Follow up our question with a question. And here's the question. A couple of them. I'm just going to read them. We can chew on these this week and consider them. First question. Do you trust in God's sovereign plan? Do you? 
trust in this sovereign plan. I'm going to tell you, the world around you, because of the prince of the power of the air, wants you to do anything but trust that there's a God that has a sovereign plan. So do you trust the God of the Bible? Next question. Have you considered God's eternal king? You, not the person across the room from you. Not the person in your family who really needs to hear this. You. Have you considered God's eternal king? And last question, do you value Christ's suffering on your behalf? I mean, you can substitute one word if you would like from do in the first question to will. So my question is, will you, my friend, trust in God's sovereign plan today? Will you consider God's eternal king, King Jesus My friend, it's no mistake that you're here today. So, my friend, will you value Christ's suffering on your behalf? You know the verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Would you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today? My friend, admit that you're a sinner in need of a holy God, a rescuer, a rescuer, Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the only way that you can be rescued, not you. You can do a good work every minute of every day, all through your life, and still not deal with your sin problem. The only way you can come before a holy God is through the work of Jesus Christ. Will you admit that you need that rescuer? Will will you believe in this rescuer? And my friend today, will you call on this rescuer to truly rescue you? We're going to close out this service in just a minute with a word of prayer. There's going to be an anthem of praise to Almighty God as we close out. There's going to be chaplains at the front. I'm going to be standing at the front here. My friend, please don't leave here without settling your eternal destiny before a holy God. Would you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith today? For those of us who have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this week, the Passion Week, will you be overwhelmed with the selflessness, the humility of the eternal King who truly suffered on your account? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who took on the form of a servant. And then... For all of us here today, will we all remember that next Sunday's coming? In God's sovereign plan, the eternal king truly must suffer, but come back next week because we're going to see from the scriptures that in God's sovereign plan, the eternal king conquered death. And so God, we thank you for the time we could spend in your word today. How appropriate it is. Oh God, I pray that you would make this come alive in our lives this week. That we would be overwhelmed with this King, this King Jesus, who must needs suffer for our sins. And then I pray today, Father, that as you prepare our hearts to celebrate next Sunday morning, that we would just 
be thrilled with a Savior who had the authority to conquer death. We love you, Father. My friends here today, I want to thank you for joining us for worship. Thank you for being such good listeners this morning, singing the songs of praise. We want to close out our time in the Word the same way we started, and that is in prayer. Contemplation. My friend, I know that God is drawing people to Himself. Maybe you, sitting there right now, are one of those that He is drawing you to salvation. You've heard these things. You've interacted with them, some of you, your whole life. But you've never come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith. My friend, would today be that day? Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued. Would you come to Jesus today? Friends here today who have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, would you pray that this week you would be overwhelmed with the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? This would not be something we take lightly. My friends, this is not some Disney or Pixar story. This really happened. Jesus went to the cross for you. So our Father, we thank you for the time we could spend in your word today. I pray even in these last moments together that you would, your, your spirit would do a work on hearts. Oh God, if there are those here who need to be saved today, that they would come to you in saving faith. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to sing an anthem. All hail the glorious Christ. God is doing a work in some of your hearts, I know. He's drawing you to salvation. He's drawing you to resolve to live for Jesus. If God is pulling on your hearts to be saved this very morning, don't delay. I'm going to stand here at the front and we're going to sing together. As God lays this on your heart, I, I would invite you even as we sing to come talk to me. I will lead you to someone that would love to tell you more about how to come into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ this very morning. There'll be those of us who stand around. Don't leave here today. I'll be here for a while. Others will be for, here for a while. Elders, uh, the chaplains, anyone in these pews would love to talk to you more about this Savior, Jesus. Don't leave here today without settling that. Some of you came this morning ready to share of your resources in worship. We're not going to pass any offering plates. There's boxes at the back, or you can share online uh, in that aspect of worship. But I want to invite all of you this morning to stand. What a great day we've had talking about this eternal king and God's sovereign plan who must suffer. Now as we close out this service and go our ways, would you sing heartily this song, All Hail the Glorious Christ. If you don't know it, please just meditate with the words on the screen.